course, are looking closely at the notion of seeing Christ in the Old Testament. But why? Of what value is this to us? Is it academic, theologic trivia? Or does it imply something pressingly important? Of course, it's the latter. I wouldn't have asked. Understanding that Christ is actually, as one of my Old Testament professors, whom you've met, Dr. Ian Duguid, Rachel and I have classes by him, he said this, the center of the Old Testament is Christ. And it helps us to realize that the Old Testament is a book about the promise of a coming Messiah through whose sufferings God would establish his glorious eternal kingdom. And he challenged us, come up with a verse in the Old Testament, and I will find and locate Christ in that. And he's never lost. On what theologic ground might Dr. Dukut say this? Well, Scripture makes this clear. Do you remember in Luke chapter 24 and verses 25 through 27, when Jesus says to the disciples on their, as they're making their way on the road to Emmaus, he said, oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter, enter into his glory? Now, here's the critical part of this. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Later on in verse 44 of that same Chapter 24, Jesus says, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. What does this mean? Jesus is really telling us, as he told his disciples, that the story of the Old Testament is his story. When Jesus said the law of the prophets and the Psalms, this is the Hebrew way of saying all of the Hebrew scriptures, that is, all of the Old Testament, constitutes a message about him. It's the linear unfolding in God's timing of the message of Christ over time. What's called the organic unfolding of redemptive history. And when we miss this central and authoritative understanding, we miss the meaning of the Old Testament. And we are left adrift without a centering principle, a fulcrum, or an ultimate transcendent reference point to the meaning of the Old Testament. When we understand Christ as the center of all Scripture, not just the New Testament, Scripture then becomes, as Dr. Richard Gaffin wrote, the accessible, absolute norm of truth. The accessible, absolute norm of truth. Dr. Gaffin went on to write this, and, and so we may say that Scripture, starting with the Old Testament and working through to the New, is Christotelic, that is, Christ is the end or the goal of the Old Testament. But it is Christotelic because it's Christocentric. Christ is the mediatorial Lord and Savior of redemptive history. Not only at its end, and this is critical to this series, but from beginning to end. And that's what we're hoping to achieve through this series. Indeed, the whole meta-narrative arc of the Bible 
is this historical redemptive story that climaxes, starts with Genesis, as we'll see tonight, but climaxes in the incarnation, the death, the burial, the resurrection, and the second coming of our Lord. This is why Paul and the other writers in the New Testament alluded to and quoted from the Old Testament continually what the apostles intuitively understood was that the prophets of old were writing, inspired by God, with the focused and unwavering understanding that Jesus was the fulfillment of the very prophecies they penned. The whole point of the first chapters of the first book of Scripture is to document creation, the effects of sin, the genealogy through which the Messiah, the the child of the promise, would eventually come. And I want to make another point about this while we're on it. Genesis is factual, historical narrative. It is factual, historical narrative. And I think it's important that we understand and believe that because of so many liberal interpreters who take immense liberties with their own sort of neo-rationalistic thinking in their trying to bring a new thought to uh, 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 understanding Genesis. Jesus is a special king who will mediate God's blessing to humanity. In this regard, then, the book we're going to start with tonight is the solid foundation upon which the entire corpus of Scripture rests. My wife always uses the illustration of how we learn. This I've learned from her and many other things that we don't have time to talk about. And knowing that, how we might best teach others. She starts at the beginning. She imagines learning about a new topic as something like a bare tree. You have to understand what the function of a tree is, she says. How it's composed of a trunk and branches, roots and leaves, and and even why trees are important. You then successively trace the branches. You add leaves and perhaps, particularly during Christmas, add ornaments. It begins to make fuller sense. It's memorable. The dependencies and interrelationships among, among each of the parts begins to become clear. So I'm going to use this method. See, honey, I am teachable. I'm going to use this method and start with a few brief verses. (laughs) Patrick's not sure I am teachable. (laughs) We're going to start with a few brief verses to illustrate how from the very beginning of Scripture, Christ is present. We are going to see that Jesus always is. That he is eternal, not created, equal in power, glory and substance to God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. So let's start at the very beginning. If you'll open your Bibles to Genesis 1. In the beginning, we read, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Genesis 1.26 Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. 
Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And then Genesis 3.21. We're really hopscotching along here. And the Lord made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. So these are the outline now of our tree. The imagery and the majesty of these verses, I struggled for weeks. They're, they're impossible to describe. They are, for me, the basis for the answers to all the big questions of life. They are sweeping in breath, bulging in content, brilliant in comprehensiveness, and provide the earliest indications of how ultimately redemptive history is going to unfold. And to what end? But men missed it. In fact, because of the fall, what's reasonably plain became in men's thinking, then and now, distorted. So I want us to take a brief tour of each of these verses to understand how they fit together and illustrate the fact of Christ in the Old Testament. So, back to Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. In this opening salvo of Scripture, we plainly learn that there is a God and there is the Spirit of God. We learn that this God has power like no other. He creates. He created the heavens and the earth. A poetic way of saying He created everything visible and invisible, that there was nothing created that he didn't create. This is a God of immense power and creativity, a God who has an immense plan, who knows everything about everything all at once, and exhaustively, exhaustively so. By his hand are all things created, and by his hand do all things hold together. This understanding is, by our early analogy, the roots of the tree of faith that we're beginning to see. Genesis 1.26, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Okay, the roots have expanded into and nourish and, and support a single, main, strong trunk. This God refers to himself as us and our. In the 28th word of the opening of Scripture... We learn that there was God and there was the Spirit of God. And now the plural form is being used twice for emphasis. While God is one, he is, as we later more clearly learn, three persons, a triune God, another branch on our tree. Genesis 3.1, which I inserted a little late here, but did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Notice the deception. Subtly questioning God's intent and then to further distance the memory of the truth God had spoken with reality, the deceiving serpent says, any tree, not the tree. The serpent goes further in verse 4 saying, you will not surely die and then provides a, a seeming motivation. For God knows that when you eat of it, 
your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. The serpent makes his case of deception that disobeying God will actually not lead to a bad thing like death, but will in fact lead to a good thing. You will be like God, knowing good from evil. Now we're beginning to perceive an important main branch off this tree trunk. Beware, there's a deceiver, a serpent. He reveals what his main tactic will be, that of questioning God's commands, of of raising doubts, and to get humans to elevate and trust their own faulty reason, reasoning over God's commands. And so he asks that fatal question that he asked even today. Did God really say that one question is the way that the deceiver today draws many into sin and away from the Creator God? And so our first parents gave in to this deception and tempted by the beauty of the fruit and trusting their own thinking over God's and their desires over God's ignored God's command and ate of the forbidden fruit and then silence in all the cosmos. Stunning rebellion against God. In that single, solitary moment, everything, everywhere changed forever. It was a shattering of all the good God desired for His created. Now death, sickness, evil, tears, and sin would distort and permeate every single aspect of our lives. We would never be without sickness and death. Indeed, what God told them was true. They and we would die as a result of breaking that one single solitary command. Now, our primary verse for tonight, Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So God responds to this rebellion by Satan and his angels and our first parents. And he immediately executes judgment on the serpent. Makes it clear to the deceiving serpent, the devil himself, that there would be enmity. That is to say that there would be intense hostility and hatred between the serpent and man. The decision of God was final. And the only entity left without any possibility of pardon or redemption is who? Satan. There can never be repentance on Satan's part. So now in chapter 3, God addresses the serpent, outlining the consequences for the serpent and foretelling what would be. There would be this hatred between woman and the serpent. And he would crawl in the dust on his belly. Further, this hostility would be ongoing between her offspring and the serpent. And then an ominous warning, a foreshadowing by God of what was to come. The serpent would bruise your heel, but in return, you shall bruise his head. Ultimately, God says the serpent will have his Head bruised, indicating a serious fatal blow, even though the offspring of the woman, Jesus, 
as we'll learn, will have their heel bruised by the serpent. This 15th verse is known as the Proto-Evangelium. It is the Scripture's first clear announcement of the Gospel and its import. And Gospel means good news. And good news it is, because in His grace and mercy toward us, God had decided to establish a covenant of grace. Through His Son, He will take the punishment due to us, and by His blood cover over our sins, such that man and God could dwell together again. The Apostle John sees this clearly. He sees the serpent as the devil. In Revelation 12:9 and 22, he makes this clear in 12:9, and the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Revelation 20, verse 2. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over to him, sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. We've already done it. We've gone from Genesis 3.15 to the very near second, third to last chapter of the last book of Scripture. We've traced something of this arc of unfolding history. Over 4,000 years between, between God's proclamation of the Gospel in Genesis 3.15 to John's account of the once-for-all finish of the serpent, the beginning and the end of written revelation by God to us. Later in Genesis 4.25, we're told of Seth's birth to Adam and Eve. And as redemptive history unfolds, we learn that from Eve to Seth to Noah and to his son Shem, to his grandson Abram, from Abram to Isaac, from Isaac to Jacob, from Jacob to the sons of the twelve tribes of Israel, including Joseph, and from there through the generations to David, then Solomon, and eventually to Joseph and Mary, and finally to the promised Messiah, the true king through whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. This fits with the statement in Genesis 3.15 that he shall bruise your head, and you, referring to the serpent, shall bruise his heel. This predicament comes to full reality in the New Testament when Christ Jesus overcomes Satan. In Hebrews 2.14, we read this of Jesus, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Of course, this verse also establishes another fact. A, a horrific reality, really, that touches the lives of every person who would ever be born and live on this earth other than Jesus. Sin exists and war ensues between God and his angels and Satan and his angels. And we are caught up in this war, a cosmic war brought on by one person's sin. The serpent becomes the great red dragon of Revelation 12. And as Scripture reveals, he is, in John, he is a murderer and a liar and a deceiver. But because of God's mere pleasure and mercy, we also learn in this verse 
that the kingdom of God will, in the end, defeat Satan and the kingdom of darkness. Jesus tells us in Matthew 16, 18, that not even the gates of hell shall prevail against the church, the bride of Christ. The devil's doom is sure. This is guaranteed by the one who promised this outcome. Let's keep going. Genesis 3.21 And the Lord made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Another major tree branch. In response to and, and because of sin in the fall, the man and the woman were ashamed. They were naked and they hid. Because sin always leads to shame. That's why unbelieving sinful man hides in the darkness, not wanting his sins exposed in the light where they can be found out and seen. The power of sin now had to become, had to be overcome. The pervasive power of sin had to meet an even greater power. The shame and nakedness resulting from sin had to be in some way covered over. And so God shed the blood of innocent animals. Animals He created. He clothed or covered up the shame of Adam and Eve's sin and nakedness. Now an important principle has been established. Hebrews 9.22 makes this point. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. This is called substitutionary shedding of blood. The shedding of blood by the guiltless to atone for the sin of the guilty. And this, of course, is pointing forward to what? To the blood Jesus would shed on the cross to cover, to substitute for the death we should have died for our sins. They couldn't have understood then the incredible act of redemption that this foreshadowed. Man chooses to sin. Remember, we were created with knowledge and righteousness and holiness such that we were capable, Adam and Eve were capable of not sinning. But they chose to disobey God. But God, in His great mercy and grace, devised a way to bridge the gulf between sinful man and sinless God. Blood had to be shed to cover over sin, because by itself, sin would have led to exactly what God said on the day that you eat of that fruit. You would die. It was not to be for millennia that the full import of that early single act would be fully recognized and understood. It was not until God sent His only Son to earth in the form of a man like us that the full horror and implications of that single choice to eat the forbidden fruit would be known. But there was a way of redemption now. But it was a painful, hard way through the narrow gate of a single God-man who would have to sacrifice everything through the shedding, not of the blood at this time of innocent animals, but his very own innocent blood 
on a cross. These brothers and sisters are the foreshadowings of what was to become the rest of the story of how God and man would reconcile. Note a significant implication here that I don't want to rush over. None, none of that reconciliation involved the work of man. Not one bit of it. Not one drop of that blood. Not one drop of the sweat from Christ's brow involved any work that we did. It would become clear as grinding century after century passed that this was all the gift of God. That it was only by grace through faith that we would be saved. And not of our own doing so that not one of us could boast. The prophets, Jesus, Scripture, the very Word of God would become the way in which the fullness of God would be revealed to us. Men would be moved to transformative life, as the confession of faith says, by the heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of all its parts, the scope of the whole, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation, the many other incomparable excellencies, and the entire perfection thereof of Scripture. And it would become the way in which man was drawn to the Word of God by the inward work of the Holy Spirit, witnessing by and with the Word in our hearts. That's why we need to know our Bibles. That's why, unlike many churches you could go to, that frankly... They're not sermons. They're TED Talks. There is never a time that you will come to this church and hear from this pulpit anything but the Word of God preached. It's that important that we know the Word. So, in summary, before I close, we see in the very opening verses of the first chapter of the first book of Scripture that there is a plan. A plan made by the great creator God from eternity past. A plan to redeem and save his creation from their own rebellion against him and the otherwise horrible and lethal lethal consequences that would have entailed. And that plan has a name. It's the covenant and it's the most perfect word you could pick of grace. It's a covenant of grace. And that plan has a guarantor who will ensure that God's rescue plan for his elect cannot fail. And that plan is centered on his son, Jesus the Christ, the promised Messiah who died the death we deserve to save the lives of us, the undeserving rebels and terrorists that we are. Scripture is the narrative of that plan. It starts with Christ. It's centered on Christ. It ends with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. It's Christ throughout. It's Christ from the beginning. It's Christ at the end. That is why commentators say that if you imagine the scarlet thread poking out from the book of Genesis and you pulled on it, the book of Revelation would scrunch up against it. And the thread is scarlet because all of Scripture hangs together. Indeed, it only makes sense when the thread or the blood of Jesus 
is seen to run through and connect all of Scripture as a cohesive whole. So what does our tree of faith look like at this point? And this is important because without a proper perspective on the whole of Scripture, of Christ at the center of it all, we will get, as many have, our theology wrong. Number one, the tree roots. God created, and he created everything. Number two, the tree trunk. God made man in his image. And this creator, God, was triune. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The first major tree branch that I wish we could prune, though a way was found, sin would enter the world. But the deceiver would ultimately be defeated. Second major tree branch, the only way to prune that branch, the only way to cover over sin was through the shedding of blood. And that shed blood would come from God himself keeping the covenant for us through the incarnation of his son. Shockingly to me, it's God who fulfills the covenant he made with Adam, not Adam. And what would become in time to be understood as this covenant of grace? As redemptive history continued to unfold from here across thousands of years, more branches, more leaves, and a single shining ornament would be added to our tree of learning and of understanding, together composing what only an all-knowing, all-powerful God could ever devise. It becomes, to use our analogy, a towering, majestic tree through which mankind is saved and which can never be destroyed. And this, this should move us to doxology, to praise and worship and obedience to the one who kept the covenant for us and who made it possible for us to be redeemed and to live forever with him in peace. But we have been sent, brothers and sisters, a king, came to save those who are his when we all get to heaven and save he will and for those who are his he is a gentle king he is a loving king who laid down his sinless life for you and for me praise God praise God praise God almighty Lord Jesus, how grateful we are that you are the true Messiah. How grateful we are that you come to save us, to redeem us, and to guide us. You and only you, Lord, are our rescuer, our savior, our deliverer. You are the only safe ground upon which to build the house of our faith and our lives. Strengthen us, Lord that we may fellowship with you forever and ever and ever. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Greg. Appreciate that.
conclude by singing hymn number 88 in your hymnals. We're going to sing one, three, and four, and then I'll ask Pastor Patrick to come and pronounce benediction. Please stand with me. give the benediction, but I urge you, brothers and sisters, as you leave this evening, to be cognizant that we go out into our mission field, remembering always that we live Coram Deo, before the very face of the living God. Now from Deuteronomy 26, the Lord has declared today that you are a people for his treasured possession, as he has promised you, and that he will set you in praise and in fame and in honor high above all the nations he has made, and that you shall be a people holy to the Lord your God, as he promised. God is in our midst through Jesus Christ our Messiah. God is at work, and God is restoring all creation. And so may the love of God, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all this day and forevermore. And we all said together, Amen. Amen.